Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Lauren. Mike. Lauren, how many times a day would you say you use a Google product? It, it's just way too many to count. I mean, it could be anything from Googling whether I can make a recipe without the cornstarch that is required <laughs> to what, what's a normal blood oxygen level, which is a, probably a fairly common search during these dark pandemic times. Google is everywhere. That's right. And that actually seems to be the point. It is everywhere. And that's what we're going to talk about on today's show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori, a senior editor at Wired. I am joined remotely by my co-host, Wired senior writer, Lauren Good. Hello. And we are also joined this week by Wired's politics writer, Galad Edelman. Calori, what's good, Lauren? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're the first person to come on the Gadget Lab and say that. That's pretty good. Thank you. Today, we're going to talk about Google. This week, the U.S. Department of Justice filed a legal complaint against Google, accusing the company of being, quote, a monopoly gatekeeper for the Internet. The DOJ says that Google dominates search on mobile devices and in web browsers and blocks its search rivals. It's the biggest antitrust case since the U.S. tried to break apart Microsoft in the 1990s. Later on in the show, we're going to talk about the complaint's broader implications for users and how the outcome of the case could change the way that you search the internet in the future. But first, we need to understand the specifics of this case. Galad, if you would, please break down the DOJ's complaint for us. Okay, cool. This should only take seven hours. <laughs> Just kidding. It's actually, as far as these legal documents go, the complaint that the DOJ filed in this case is, is quite straightforward. Uh, and one reason for that is that of all the cases it could have brought against Google, this one's actually pretty narrow. It's pretty focused. So maybe I'll start by just saying what it's not about. So this case is not about Google's dominance over all the different stages of online advertising. It's not about um, Google's market share of, uh, of cell phones with Android. It's really about one thing. It's about Google search. And specifically, the Department of Justice alleges that Google has engaged in illegally in anti-competitive scheme to 
maintain and expand its monopoly position in general search. So here's what the government argues. They say, it's basically, I describe it as three steps. Step one, Google pays Apple to be the default search engine on iPhones and on the Safari browser. Google also requires phone manufacturers who want to run Android to set Google as the default search on their phones. And it also pays them a cut of its revenue for doing that. The government says that that's significant because while Google argues that, you know, anybody's free to, to switch, as a practical matter, people are unlikely to actually change the defaults. Okay, now step two, profits. So now Google, with its, with its dominant position in search entrenched via these exclusive deals, it has a monopoly on search advertising dollars, which means it makes a lot of money. It doesn't have to compete with any real um, other players. Uh, and so it makes tens of billions a year in search advertising revenue. Step three, give a cut of those big monopoly profits back to the apples of the world, the phone developer uh, manufacturers of the world to keep that monopoly position locked in. Does that make sense? Yes. It does make sense. Why do you think it is that the DOJ has focused on this specific part of Google's business in this lawsuit as opposed to, uh, for example, its Android dominance? I think the reason is that this is a pretty simple theory of antitrust violation uh, to make out, to prove in court, and to prove in the court of public opinion. That doesn't mean that the government's definitely going to win, and I don't think it even means that this is the actual strongest case you could make against this company that has dominant share of so many different businesses and has had so many different criticisms leveled at it. But I do think this is the simplest argument to explain. So what you just said is intriguing to me because this is about the default search engine on browsers and on mobile devices. Now, you can go into Chrome and Safari and change your default search engine very easily. You can also do that on Android phones. You can do it on iOS so if that's something that is like super easy for anybody to do with like 30 seconds of free time, uh, what does the government have to say about that and why that creates a dominant position? This gets to what I think is going to be the heart of this case. So the government says that, look, sure, people can switch, but just as a matter of fact, people generally don't. What that means is if you're one of the very small number of alternative search engines, mainly Bing and DuckDuckGo in the United States. And DuckDuckGo is tiny, but they're there. And then Bing has like, I don't know, like a 10% share of search. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> Those are the only two others in the United States that actually index the web themselves. There are other search engines that just license Google's results. Sidebar. So the, the government says, okay, sure, people can switch, but they generally don't. And that what that means as a practical consequence, is that if you're Bing or if you're DuckDuckGo, you never even get a fair chance to present yourself to users as an option. Because most people just do stick with the default. Most people don't think to themselves, hmm, maybe I should switch it up. Maybe I should see what Bing's all about. And so given the reality of how people use technology, this deprives competitors of a fair shot. Now, Google says exactly what you said. Um, you know, competition is just a click away has, has long been their kind of blanket slogan to defend against antitrust claims. And on the one hand, it's true. You can switch. But that raises a question. 
if being the default doesn't provide a big advantage, what are they spending all this money on? They pay Apple billions with a B of dollars a year to be the default search on iPhones and Safari. So what is that money buying them if, as they claim, it's really no big deal to be the default? That's a really interesting question. You know, can either of you actually think of a competitor in search that has come close to Google's dominance in recent years? I think you have to go back 20 years, right? With the big search engines, there were like the, the five or six big ones. There was like Lycos, AltaVista, Yahoo. Google came along and just did the one thing that none of them could do, which was provide search results much more quickly. And that just completely decimated everybody. And that's how they became dominant. Everybody admits that, including the government, that Google won in the beginning by being the best. You know, no, no, one, no one denies that Google built up its empire by just kicking ass at search. You know, they're, they're a very successful company and they've done a lot of really smart, really innovative, uh, really, you know, kind of awesome for consumers things. The government's position is that what happened next is the problem. That once Google built up this dominant share of the market, that's when it started basically erecting these walls around its monopoly to keep competitors out. So one of the things that the company said in that blog post that you talked about, the blog post that they put up uh, in response to the DOJ's complaint going up, uh, was that they they do see significant competition from other places where people can search, like on Amazon or on Yelp. Uh, and, you know, the company says that, like, those apps are on people's phones and they can go to those websites and search there and that Google does not have complete search dominance. Does that argument hold water at all? I don't think so, but you never know. So to back up a little bit, there's basically two parts of this case. There, there are two main questions that are going to be argued over in court, however far this case gets in court. The, the second one actually is the one that we've already talked about. Do these exclusive deals actually restrict competition in an unfair way? But the first question goes to what you were just getting at, Kalori, which is what is the market here? So I think to most people, the, the idea that Google is competing in search with with Yelp or Amazon or, or um, like Priceline seems a little weird because I think that the typical person thinks, well, Google is search is a search engine and Amazon's a store and Yelp is a, you know, a place where I look for restaurants. This gets to a key issue in any antitrust case, which is how do you define the market? If you define the market the way the government wants to, it's this thing called general search. Mm -hmm. You know, you go to a site and you just kind of, it's sort of your starting point for anything you want to look for. If you define it that way, Google loses this question because obviously Google controls just a you know ninety plus percent share of the general search market. So Google wants to say no, no, no. We're not competing just against Bing and DuckDuckGo. That's too narrow a lens. We're competing against anywhere where anybody might search for stuff. When someone's searching for sneakers, we don't want them to go to Amazon. We want them to go to Google. When someone's looking for a restaurant, we don't want them to go to Yelp. We want them to go to Google. If somebody's searching for planes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And Google's acquisition patterns over the past several years would indicate that as well. So what they're saying they're competing against are very specific ver verticals, whether it's restaurant reviews or travel. But Google bought Zagat's, right? And Google bought ITA. And Google has 
created an experience where now when you go to Google, in the search results, you often see a Google card of information that provides a snapshot of the information you're looking for, so you don't have to navigate to those other sites. Absolutely, and this is something that came up uh, quite a bit in the recent House antitrust report uh, about the four big tech platforms. There were a lot of internal documents that show that Google really saw vertical search as its biggest threat, having already kind of taken over general search, or I guess what you might call horizontal search. Um, and those aggressive moves, those you know, those buying up all those vertical search companies, that kind of raises, I would say, different antitrust concerns. And, and that brings us back to the point I made at the beginning of the show, which is there's lots of different antitrust issues people have raised with Google and and, and the government has chosen to focus on a, a pretty narrow one. So, you know, the, this question of, well, is it really fair for Google to also buy up uh, flight ticket aggregators so that it can try to put Kayak out of business? I think that's kind of a question for another day. I just want to say, by the way, for people who are listening, if you are working on some kind of new search engine <laughs> or you're working for one of the big companies and you're working on a search engine as like a Skunk Works project, Mike and I would love to hear from you. So you can find our emails easily online. Just drop us a line. Um, but I wanted to ask, Galad, what this means for Apple. Because as you mentioned, in the House Judiciary Subcommittee report that was released earlier this month, it wasn't just Google, it was Amazon, Apple and Facebook as well, who were the target of these ongoing investigations. And it was suggested that Apple may be abusing its market dominance in certain areas. As this lawsuit shows, Apple is actually relying quite heavily on Google's technology for search. So I'm just wondering what that means for the perception of Apple as a dominant market player. It doesn't help. I'm not sure if there's really going to be any legal significance here for Apple. I just don't know. The House report we have to keep that really distinct from this DOJ lawsuit. The, the House report capped a really long investigation, and that wasn't about bringing any particular case. That was about doing a lot of research, figuring out what the problems are, and making a lot of recommendations, many of which were for new legislation, right? So Congress can pass a law to, to address problems. The Department of Justice can't pass a law. They can say, well, given the law that exists, here's what we think is already illegal. So... In the House report, they really focused when it came to Apple on on one thing, which is the way Apple uses its gatekeeper power over the App Store unfairly or allegedly unfairly. So the the House investigation really took exception to the way Apple takes a hefty cut of all the payments that app developers receive, the way that it, you know, can – that if you don't basically – agree to what Apple wants, you can just get, you know, denied access to iPhone users, which is an extinction event for an app developer, especially in the United States. Now, the the Apple tie-in in this DOJ case against Google, it's a little bit different. What it looks like is Google and Apple have a deal under which Google pays Apple uh, billions of dollars a year to be the search default. I don't know on its own if that really raises any legal risk for Apple, but there was a line in the in the legal filing, the complaint, that was pretty suggestive where they quote uh, an Apple employee or executive saying something like, we want it to be like we're operating as one company. Uh, that, you know, it's illegal for uh, companies to conspire to restrain trade as the mm-hmm. law, the very, very old antitrust law puts it. This is quite speculative, but I could imagine this arrangement also providing fodder for another claim that Apple and Google actually colluded 
um, to to discriminate against Google's competitors. But that again, I'm not, this is not legal advice, uh, wired listeners. I never took the bar exam, but that is my speculation. Well, thank you for sharing your knowledge, even if it is inferior to that of your peers. Ouch. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about how the outcome of this complaint could change the way that you search. Hackers and cyber criminals have always held this kind of special fascination. Obviously, I can't tell you too much about what I do. It's a game. Who's the best hacker? And I was like, well, this is child's play. I'm Dina Temple Raston. And on the Click Here podcast, you'll meet them and the people trying to stop them. We're not afraid of the attack. We're afraid of the creativity and the intelligence of the human being behind it. Click here. Stories about the people making and breaking our digital world. AI machines. Satellite. Engine ignition. Click here. And liftoff. Click here. Every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. So while it could take years for this to shake out, whatever the outcome is, the chances are that this complaint could alter, if even only slightly, the way that we search for things on the internet. Galad, I want to ask you, what is the most likely outcome that you've heard from the experts that you've talked to? You know, I've mostly been talking to experts on the law, as opposed to experts on search. And one reason for that is, whatever happens in this case, it's a long way away. It's going to take months, at least, for a judge to rule on um, any motion to dismiss that Google files. Then there's, you know, could be a year or a year and a half of discovery. So strap in, because this is going to be a while. Having said that, an antitrust case can produce results even before the case is actually concluded. So one thing you can imagine here is the Department of Justice and Google entering some kind of settlement or consent decree where Google just agrees to stop striking these exclusive deals uh, to be the search default. And if that happened, then when you opened, when you got a new phone or installed a new browser, instead of just defaulting to Google, it would presumably would prompt you to pick. It would offer you uh, a menu of search options. And that would give DuckDuckGo and Bing and whoever else an opportunity to get a toehold. Now, a really interesting question in that scenario is how much would really change? You, like Google is good. There, there's there are things about it that have gotten worse, that have gotten annoying. There's a lot more ads. Uh, it, it really steers you to stay on Google.com, and you know often the answer boxes are kind of crappy because it's AI just pulling from some random articles, and it should just be my articles. But <laughs> but it should be all so, wired articles. Yeah, yeah. Well, sure, but it's mostly mine. Um, and um, like, but but Google, you could definitely imagine people just being like, "Well, I still just prefer Google." So, you know, it would be really interesting, is how I'll put it. It would be really interesting to, to see what would happen. Now, are Google and the DOJ going to enter into some agreement where Google stops doing this voluntarily to make the case go away? I don't see it happening. First of all, I think. Government wants something splashy here. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't. I can't get inside their heads. Lord knows, but I think they want to achieve an outcome that's a little bigger, a little more robust than just Google not entering into these deals to be the default anymore. And then on Google's side, 
I would be very surprised if they were if they agreed to stop doing this. You know, if they if they were willing to admit any fault. You know, they say they don't, they don't even need these. That people just choose Google because it's the best. So, sort of under their own logic, you would think it'd be the easiest thing in the world to just walk away from this. But as we discussed, they it's clearly worth enough to them to spend billions of dollars on it. So those two facts are sort of in tension with each other. Your story also talks about preloaded apps. And while we've already covered that this is not about Android specifically, in your story, you write about how Google, in exchange for providing the Android operating system to billions of devices around the world, and its search services often will require a manufacturer to have certain apps preloaded unless they've completely forked the operating system. So while all of this is so hard to predict, what do you think this could potentially mean for the way that these tech giants handle preloaded apps on our devices? Yeah, that's a really good point, Lauren. It's not it's not just about setting Google search as the default. There's this other part of of the of what the government describes as a monopolization play where if you want to run Android, you know, Android is technically free. It's open source, but it's not really free in the sense that you have to agree to a bunch of conditions set by Google uh to license it including preloading a bunch of Google apps. And you and like so, for example, you can't even have the Google App Store if you don't go along with this list of requirements. So you basically can't have a phone because you're either an iPhone, which is Apple, it's it's a, that's a closed universe, or you're Android. It's the only uh, real viable non-Apple mobile operating system. So it's not really much of a choice to do this. And so a possible outcome of this case is that you could see. I'm getting out a little bit over my skis here in terms of my expertise, but you could potentially see phone makers having more freedom to customize what they offer and and seeing a little bit more open competition in the mobile operating space and in the in the app space. So if somehow the government is able to ban Google from making these exclusive arrangements with Apple and with device makers, what is preventing Microsoft, for example, from swooping in to cut the exact same deals, and then all of our phones just run Bing whenever we buy them? It's a good question. I would have two answers to that. First, it's really hard to imagine, just as a, on a practical level, if there were some kind of outcome where Google's prohibited from doing this, I think other companies would be wary from trying to establish the same kind of entrenched position that Google just got prosecuted for. But But the other issue is that whether this conduct is in violation of the antitrust laws depends on your market share. Whether you have something in that in antitrust laws called market power. Market power means you're so big that you can charge prices or extract demands or get favorable deals that you can't that you're not earning just by outcompeting. When you're so big that you can just kind of throw your weight around and offer take it or leave it deals or extract higher prices because you're the only shop in town. So when it comes to Google and these search arrangements, step one of the analysis is really important. The fact that Google has power in this market, that it has such a dominant share, um, that when you combine that with these deals, it arguably locks out possible competitors. So that's a long wind up to Bing doesn't have that monopoly share of the search market. So just in sort of cut and dry antitrust terms, it would probably not raise the same legal 
concerns. However, it would just look really shitty, and I don't think that Microsoft would want to invite that headache. It would be quite ironic if 20 years later, Microsoft somehow becomes the solution to Google's antitrust problems. Well, the Microsoft connection is really fascinating here, and it comes up a lot in, in all this stuff, including in the in the DOJ's complaint, because this case looks a lot like the Microsoft case. Microsoft got in trouble for basically forcing, um, sort of linking together its Windows operating system with Internet Explorer. So if you wanted to be a computer that ran Windows, you had to have Internet Explorer and not Netscape Navigator, which was the biggest competitor at the time. And that was seen as an illegal tying arrangement. It was a way that Microsoft was trying to entrench uh, you know, leverage its dominance in operating system to m- make sure that Internet Explorer may remain the dominant browser. Google complained about that at the time. Uh, Google was one of the beneficiaries of the Microsoft antitrust suit. Um, Google has a re- the world's most popular browser today. It ain't Internet Explorer. It's Google Chrome. The government argues that these these exclusive default deals are analogous to the Microsoft case, especially, you might say, when it comes to the Android phone manufacturers, where it's like, oh, you want to run Android, huh? Well, you got to make sure that, um, you know, these apps are standard and default, right? That looks a lot like, oh, you want to run Windows? Well, you have to make sure that Internet Explorer is the default browser. Would you say, though, that back then our Internet experiences, even though we were connected to the Internet, they were more siloed? I mean, in the sense that you you bought a PC, it was a Microsoft PC, you opened it, and there was Internet Explorer, and that was your internet browsing experience, whether that was like foisted upon you or forced upon you or, or not, but just for the sake of this argument. But now, I mean, Google's operating system, it's it's on these billions of Android mobile phones. It's on smart TV boxes. It's, it's the underpinning for some of... Uh, Amazon's hardware, right, which has used forked versions of the Android OS. Um, it's like mesh networks and Wi-Fi routers. And and I know I'm getting like a little bit far away from this core idea of search here, but it just feels as though um, it's actually more challenging these days to just know everything about the underpinnings of the technology that we use. But increasingly, it just points back to these like three or four key companies that are owning that experience. Yeah, I mean, that seems right to me. I I actually thought you were going to go in a different direction, though. So so I agree that Google is ubiquitous in a way that that goes way beyond just it being the dominant search platform. But where I thought you were going was, you know, it's easier to switch between Google and another search engine than it probably felt 20 years ago to switch between Internet Explorer and another browser. That's true. Um, and so I, I do think that just on that score, Google probably feels pretty confident that, that you know, this, this I, I'm sure Google will say this is nothing like the Microsoft case. That was so much more locking users into a certain product. And, and here it's just, gosh, it's just so darn easy to, to switch your search engine. I just don't see what the fuss is about. So they will claim. And, and, I, and I should be clear that they might win. So, you know, I've been, I've been leaning more on the, on the argument against Google, but you got to remember, these cases get decided by judges who really have for decades been drinking from the fountain of almost everything is okay. It's just really hard for the government to win an antitrust case uh, under the current legal doctrine. Um, You know, we saw just in the past year or so, a federal judge 
I can't remember the, the technical specifics, but basically overruled DOJ that was seeking to block a merger between T-Mobile and Sprint. That merger took the number of national phone carriers from four to three. Um, that seems pretty nuts. And the judge was like, nah, T-Mobile's the uncarrier. They're really innovative. And they say that acquiring Sprint is going to you know, be good. So we should probably just let them do it. You know, I'm exaggerating, but only a little bit. And that's that's sort of what we're dealing with here. So if this case gets up to a judge like that and Google says, Your Honor, it's really easy to switch the defaults. I could totally see that federal judge saying, yeah, you're right. Well, Galad, this has been fascinating. Thank you for bringing us through uh, all of the developments. Uh, we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we're going to do our recommendations. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. All right, welcome back. Galad, you are our guest, so you get to go first. What is your recommendation? All right, I think you're going to like this one, Kalori. So Wait, but I'm not? It's going to be a weird of, it's going to be a weird food combination, isn't it? It's not a weird food combination, okay. but it is it is it is food and beverage related. So slice up a lemon or two and keep the slices in a bag or a Tupperware in your fridge to have them on hand. Lemon slices are good. They're useful for a lot of things. It's annoying sometimes to have to get a cutting board involved when all you want is a squeeze of lemon in your beverage. This has become more important for me because especially in the pandemic, it's really hard to kind of mark the transition from work to after work. And like a lot of people, I often just have alcohol to signal to myself, like, okay, I'm done working, I'll have a drink. But I shouldn't have alcohol every day because of calories or calories in it. And so (laughs) I, so sometimes instead I'll do a little seltzer with ice and a slice of lemon to, you know, kick things up a notch. It's not a beverage that I'm having during the work day, but you, to make that work, you got to have the lemon slices on hand because otherwise it's too annoying. Now you might be wondering why not limes? This is a little bit more provocative, but I've found that Limes in my fridge tend to go brown pretty fast, whereas lemons will kind of last forever. Um, and the other thing that I've noticed is that they're they're quite interchangeable. Uh, a lot of languages don't even have separate word for lemon or lime, or if they do, the word for lime is just green lemon. Um, you can even put a slice of lemon in your beer, like a you know bland Mexican or American pilsner, and it serves the same purpose as lime. So that's my recommendation, y'all. Are we talking... Wedges or rounds? Uh, can I phone a friend? That's such a devastating question. <laughs> <laughs> like I was thinking, like silver dollars. So, I mean, I tend to cut them in kind of wedges because they're easier to squeeze. 
rounds are okay. rounds are pretty, but you can't really get the juice out, let alone fit it into a beer. So I'm going like pretty thin wedges, but with enough of an arc size that you can get enough purchase on it to squeeze the juice out. Solid. Solid. I, I just, my mind is blown for a couple of reasons right now. One is that I wasn't sure a lot if you were eventually going to get back to the alcohol thread. Like you started out by saying it's not good to drink every day, but you ended on put lemon in your beer. So I'm impressed with the way you kind of, you kind of closed the narrative on that. But I'm also just thinking about how every week I sit here thinking, I have to really think of something good and smart and relevant and intelligent to offer our audience. Like I stress about this every Thursday, like what have I been reading or watching? And like you just came on and just with like a beautiful amount of of eloquence and confidence said slice lemons. Yeah, I would argue that I invented citrus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Lauren, what did you invent this week? I am very proud to know a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, well, you you won a freaking Emmy, so. Um, I really am just going to put this in a drawer. Um, so uh, yeah, just the li- the listeners don't know this, but Lauren, <laughs> sort of just just far enough behind her that it's kind of tasteful and subtle. There is uh, an Emmy on the mantle behind Lauren in her there, Zoom feed. There is an Emmy award. Um, Okay, but um, I I feel like this is going to be a bit of a chaser, and I didn't mean for it to be a chaser, but I'm holding up a book right now that is How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings. (laughs) 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 It's a book by Sarah Cooper, who many of you may, may know who she is at this point. She is a comedian, and she became very famous during this pandemic for her lip sync TikToks of the absurd things that Donald Trump says. And now she has her own Netflix special coming out sometime next week, I believe. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it. But a friend gave me this last weekend. She she just bought a few copies and she was handing them out to her friends and she said I just thought people would enjoy this. And and I've started it and it's a very, very funny book and it's a very light and easy read. There's like a section where she talks about talking to like other um okay, here it is. Uh, This is about getting interrupted. There's a big yellow banner that says threatening over it. And there's a woman saying, can I finish what I was saying to her two colleagues? And then there's non-threatening next to it where everyone is just silent. There are no word bubbles. And then it says at the bottom as a caption, when you get interrupted, you might be tempted to just continue talking or even ask if you can finish what you were saying. This is treacherous territory. Instead, simply stop talking. The path of least resistance is silence. Uh, obviously this is satirical it's a funny little book and um, I recommend it this week also with a slice of lemon Mike what is your recommendation this week I am also recommending a book Uh, I just started reading it two days ago it's pretty new it's a book about music and it's a book about Radiohead it's called This Isn't Happening Radiohead's Kid A and the Beginning of the 21st Century And it's written by a journalist, a music writer named Stephen Hyden. He's also the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, which is Rivals, which I've talked about on the show before. Um, This is a book that is kind of about Radiohead recording their album Kid A, which came out around 20 years ago. Uh, It's also a book about how all of the technologies 
that had been bubbling up in like the electronic music world and in the mainstream music world made their way into modern rock and roll and how Radiohead was largely responsible for their move from one genre into another. So it's a great book about music history. It's a great book about music technology. Uh, it talks a lot about like dance music and about the internet. And it, of course, talks a lot about Radiohead. So if you're a Radiohead fan, it is an absolute must read. If you are a modern musicologist, it is also a must read. So that's my recommendation. This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A in the Beginning of the 21st Century by Stephen Hyden. You guys are both musicians, yes? Both Galati yes. and Michael. Um, yeah. Glad you play some type of horn. Is that correct? <laughs> I uh, I'm a jazz saxophonist. Saxophone. Play okay, I knew that. Alto, um, no, tenor, or baritone. Yeah. Alto, which I really don't recommend. Oh. It's a cursed instrument. <laughs> well, it, and Michael plays guitar. So the next time that we do the gadget lab together, we're just going to have to have you guys play a song. Cool. I am not volunteering to sing. I'm just going to sit silently and enjoy. We'll give you a tambourine. That sounds good. I could do that. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our show for this week. Galad, thank you again for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. And we're recording this on Thursday. So good luck covering the debate tonight. Oh, there's a debate. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend something very strong with ice and a slice of lemon. <laughs> <laughs> good friggin' idea. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. We also want to say goodbye to our outgoing executive producer, Alex Kappelman. Bye, Alex. We love you and we will miss you. And until next week, goodbye. Okay. All right. You guys ready? Yes. Yep. <clears throat> Lauren. Mike. <laughs> Keep that in. Mike. <laughs> Wait, do that once more. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. From PRX.